America is back. Diplomacy is back. Well, you know what? Okay. Present everywhere, from Lithuania to the Sahel, to Afghanistan, to Iraq, to Lebanon. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. This week's episode was produced in partnership with Tipton Mercator, who are generously supporting several War and Peace episodes. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from really stunningly lovely Lake Como in Italy. And it's interesting that it's stunningly lovely because this week we're talking about climate. But because it's War and Peace, we're talking about climate, conflict, and peace. Particularly of interest as we approach the G7 summit a little bit later in this month of June, member countries have promised to reaffirm their commitment to limiting global warming to 1.5 degrees. But despite the lofty promises, there's a real risk that climate will once again be taking a back seat, that the countries of the G7 and indeed the world might be more interested in talking about energy security, about food security, about Russia's continuing war on Ukraine and how to respond. And it's far from guaranteed that all or perhaps even many of the policies pledged at the Conference of Parties uh, 26, the big climate conference, are actually going to materialize. Despite the fact that we do have pretty good evidence at this point that climate change is wreaking a lot of devastation around the world, from a crippling drought in the Horn of Africa to historic heat waves in South Asia, other things do seem to keep getting in the way of actually addressing the problem. So to talk about this, I'm really excited to welcome Champa Patel. Champa is Crisis Group's Director of Innovation and the Deputy Director for our Future of Conflict team. The Future of Conflict team at Crisis Group indeed deals with the complicated relationship between climate and conflict, as well as looking at economic questions, technology, and all of these very important topics relating to how conflict around the world is changing. Before joining us here at Crisis Group, Champa worked as the director of the Asia-Pacific program at Chatham House and has also held several roles prior to that at Amnesty International. Champa, welcome to War and Peace. Thank you, Alia. Great to join you for the discussion. So Champa, for those of our listeners who are not expert in the matter, is climate change causing conflict? Is it just making it worse? Could we even tell? So what we say is that there is no direct relationship between climate change and conflict. It's a threat multiplier. So the ways that it contributes to violence is through exacerbating the sort of tensions that already existed. So whether that's political, social or economic. And what we see in fragile countries worldwide is that millions of people are already experiencing record heat waves, droughts and feeling the impacts of rising sea levels. And this in turn then impacts food security, water scarcity and resource competition. So in that respect, it's not that climate causes conflict, but what we see with climate is that it can multiply the threats that already exist and cause further stress on the most fragile and vulnerable in society. So when you look, for instance, at Russia's war against Ukraine, what's the climate component there? 
I think part of the current challenge that we have at the moment is how reliant the world is on fossil fuels from a relatively small subset of countries. So the risk is that in the short term, the need to ensure energy security is outweighing longer term considerations. And that's the climate angle, because intensified fossil fuel production is not going to help us meet the emissions reductions targets that have been set, that are really necessary to make sure that the impacts of climate change are not catastrophic, because the impacts are going to be felt by those, mostly in countries that are already fragile or experiencing conflict. So what we're seeing is this rush to really double down on intensifying natural gas production. But what's really needed is to double down on the clean energy transition. And the other aspect of it, I would think, is that the inability of Ukraine to export grain and constraints on Russia's exports on grain and on fertilizer, some of which are Russia's own choice, but that both of these have limited access to food to people who are already suffering from not just war, but also climate catastrophes such as drought, right? Yeah, food insecurity is a big issue at the moment, but in some ways, fuel is more socially combustible. So what we're seeing is uh, rollbacks on important commitments. Now, fuel is important because it's essential for the distribution of grain, for the distribution of food, but also for the production of food. Natural gas is a key component of fertilizer. So what we have at the moment is that the Ukraine crisis is causing a shortfall in the ability of countries to purchase grain because of uh, blockades on seaports that are not allowing what exists to get out, but also impacting the ability to grow food that's needed now and in the future through a shortage in the commodities that are necessary. There has been this rush to respond to Ukraine. Do you think that it's pushing climate off the agenda or do you think that it's just been difficult for countries to get climate effectively on the agenda, and they might not have gotten the exact same amount of attention even absent this escalated war? I think it's a tale of two halves, because on the one hand, what you have is countries saying that they're going to intensify investment in renewables to insulate themselves against future shocks. But I think the other side of the equation is the intensification of fossil fuel production that they're seeking. And I think that's the problem that we have at the moment. Short-term considerations are outweighing the long-term risks that we face with this reliance on fossil fuel energies. So in that respect, I think more effort needs to go into investing in renewables and reducing the reliance on fossil fuels. The risk is if we don't invest in renewables now and reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, we could be facing the point of no return. And I don't think we're at that yet. In some respects, in some aspects of reducing emissions, we've already passed the point of no return. But if we continue to focus on fossil fuel for energy instead of intensifying production in renewables, then I think we are looking at failing on our climate obligations. How much is climate a factor in the tension between the developed world and the developing world, right? That's the other thing we've seen in the Ukraine war is a lot of countries in the global south look at what's going on and say, this war is distracting the developed countries, distracting the Europeans and the Americans, most notably, and they're not paying attention to the things that matter to us. Is climate one of those things? Is there a real divide on climate between the wealthy and the poor of the world? 
Absolutely. And I think actually what you see is that climate is just another expression for that for developing countries, because it comes on top of a context of COVID-19, where you saw vaccine nationalism, vaccine inequalities, people who were most desperate to get the vaccines just not being able to get them, whereas richer countries were hoarding vaccine supplies beyond the need that they had within their own populations. So I think it comes in a context of seeing this play out in regards to other key global issues, and then climate comes on top of that. So developed countries were not meeting their commitments in the first place. They were already well short of what was actually needed in terms of the financial commitments that they have made. But now, as more aid, as more funding gets diverted to Ukraine, there are concerns that's going to leave less for conflicts and crises in other parts of the world, whether that's through humanitarian support to address the food insecurity that we're seeing in regions such as the Horn of Africa, in which countries like Somalia are looking at a possible famine, but also that there isn't going to be that support for climate adaptation that's absolutely critical to ensure that countries can cope with climatic change and have resilience in order to deal with the challenges that they're facing. What is climate adaptation? How does that work? So climate mitigation is the effort that's made to try and reduce emissions. Climate adaptation is helping communities be resilient to the changes that have already happened. So it's everything from changing how agriculture is done, supporting communities to diversify crops. It's a range of initiatives and tools that can help people be resilient in the face of climate change. And climate financing, how does that work? So climate financing is primarily through mitigation and adaptation. So this is financial support provided to those who need it to make sure that they can mitigate the risks of climate change or adapt to what is already going on. And then there's another form of financing, which is around loss and damages for where you have irreversible harms or effects. And what we're seeing is as funding is diverted to Ukraine, it's conflict countries that are most vulnerable, most fragile, that are going to feel the brunt of reduced funding shortfalls. But they are the ones who most need it in order to deal with the effects of climate change. Can you give some examples of projects say in the Horn of Africa where climate financing has been important? So there are examples of climate financing that have supported adaptation. Kenya is experiencing a historic drought, which has really decimated livelihoods and exacerbated intercommunal tensions. There is a local civil society organization in Baringo County that provides drought-resistant grass seeds to many farmers and pastoralists. Now, this is a cheap and effective initiative. It provides income streams. It helps people have livelihoods. As the seeds grow into long grass, it can be harvested and sold or stored as hay, or they can be sold back again to the civil society organization. Now, there's some evidence to suggest that the herders responsible for cattle raiding are now putting down their arms as this scheme is providing an alternative source of income. So this is an example of how you can do adaptation in a conflict-sensitive way. So as well as supporting communities to be resilient, you're also reducing the risks of conflict that may occur as well. How do you see Europe's role in all of this as the European Union, as individual countries? What is the EU doing? What are EU member states doing? What should they be doing? EU member states have made a great deal of financial commitment on climate financing, but the proof is in the pudding. So it's not enough to make a commitment. It's actually delivering on those commitments, right? So I think what we're missing at the moment is implementation. 
How do we turn pledges into action? How do we make sure that the commitments made result in tangible change for those most impacted? And I think what we see is a lot of attention on ameliorating the impacts. So, for example, if you look at the commodity shocks at the moment and the food insecurity that's occurred, what you have is a lot of financing going towards supporting countries to be able to access the food that they need. But at the same time, this is not a demand problem. It's a supply problem. So it's not that the demand for food has suddenly gone up and everybody's scrabbling to find a way to deal with that. It's because the food that exists cannot get to the people that most need it. So in that respect, European countries need to go further and think through how can you support more resilient supply chains? How can you make sure that we are able to have commodities shipped and go to the places that they needed to go to? War and Peace a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. And I'm talking to Champa Patel of Crisis Group about climate and conflict and food insecurity and all these other related topics. For European countries, other than doing good and helping people, are there advantages to themselves and to their own security of supporting the developing world and supporting fragile countries to better adapt and mitigate the effects of climate? I think it's in the interest of European countries to support climate initiatives because it's a way of strengthening global peace and security that minimizes the onward kind of risks of displacement and the migration that we see that occurs because of conflict and crises. It's in everybody's interest to ensure the communities are resilient and can cope with crises so that you don't have reverberations that then impact other countries. And I think it's important to tackle the poverty that we see and help the world's most vulnerable. All aspirations and aims that the European countries have said that they want to meet and have signed up to. Kind of moving slightly, but not entirely away from Europe. The G7 has a summit coming up June 26th, 28th. The G7, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States. What should the G7 countries be talking about and then doing when it comes to climate? So I think there's three things that the G7 countries should be talking about and thinking about what they can do to support. The first is these economies are some of the most important humanitarian funders that we have in the international system. The group's members with the European Commission covered about 70% of the World Foods Programme, almost 10 billion budget last year. And in comparison, if you look at a country like China, that provides less than 1% of World Food Programme funding. So their continued humanitarian support is necessary and to ensure that their support for Ukraine doesn't put a squeeze on budgets for other crises. But that, that by itself is not enough to deal with the scale of the crisis that we're seeing at the moment. So I think they have to find ways to ease supply chains and increase food production. Now, this is challenging, as it might mean reconsidering the nature of the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. And the G7 might not be open to easing any measures at the moment. Critics will argue that the G7 should not make limited offers of sanctions relief. But the challenge is at the moment, even though food and fertilizers aren't sanctioned, financial institutions are. And what you sometimes hear from developing countries, and this has certainly been the view put forward by the chairperson of the African Union, Makisal, is that even if the food itself or the fertilizer is not sanctioned, countries cannot purchase these because of the restrictions on institutions. So whether it sanctions exemptions or carve-outs, there has to be a way to ease 
supply chains in order to be able to make it easier for countries to be able to purchase food and fuel. So I think these are difficult and challenging issues without easy solutions. But I think the G7 countries, you know, it's imperative that they think through how they might ease supply chains. And I think the final thing they could do is think through how they can support countries that are financially vulnerable and also face conflict risks to have the economic tools to handle these types of countries. Now, usually if a country has a commodity shock, they can meet that by offering subsidies or price caps and extending social welfare programs. But if you're a country that has a high level of debt, you're not going to have enough economic headroom to implement those types of measures. So there are tools that G7 countries could promote that support countries with a high debt burden and also climate and conflict insecure. And one of those is to promote the use of the IMF special drawing rights, which helps countries maintain liquidity. So they could recycle, they're called SDRs, they could recycle these and reallocate them to more vulnerable countries. And those commitments have been made by G7 members, but to date, none of those assets have been dispersed. So it's a complex process, but they could now make a push to redistribute these SDRs because it would give fragile countries the economic headroom they need in order to deal with some of the shocks that they're facing. And what about commitments to reduce dependence on fossil fuels? What's the outlook on actually limiting those in the face of frantically looking for alternatives to dependence on Russia? Will there be reduced dependence on natural gas, on coal, or is this going to be harder than people thought? I think the challenge is that people are parallel tracking at the moment. So they want to intensify fuel fuel production, but at the same time, invest more in renewables. So in an interesting way, people are using this crisis as an opportunity to diversify their energy sources for the future. But that comes at the risk of what they're doing in the short term to make sure that they have energy now. So if you look at the European Commission, they have a new initiative called the Repower EU, where 12 billion is earmarked for gas pipelines. 12 billion. But they say it's a short-term move to ensure energy security. But if that level of investment was put into renewables, then they're ensuring that they're insulated against future shocks. So I think in that sense, what we're seeing is the countries trying to adopt two paths, one looking at the short-term, one looking at the long-term, But there is a risk that the short term is going to undermine progress on the long term if it's not done carefully. Is there going to be a COP27? What's going to happen there? So COP27 is set to take place in Egypt later on this year. The key areas of focus at the COP will be looking at issues such as reducing emissions, climate financing. And I think what we will see is a great deal of debate about how commitments that were made in successive COPs, the same commitments that were made last year, the year before, we are still falling short of what is actually needed. But conflict is not part of the global climate agenda. And this is because COP is a consensus-based process. And there's a wide range of views among states on the links between climate and conflict. But we are already seeing the impacts. In South Sudan, we can see conflict is already shaping the way that people use and share land. Ongoing flooding has contributed to mass displacement of half a million people, among them ethnic Dinka herders, some of whom have been forced south to the Equatoria region. And relations between Equatorian and Dinka elites are already fraught. We're seeing across the Sahel the climatic distress 
has led to a breakdown of traditional land use arrangements, aggravating farmer herder disputes and again displacing hundreds of thousands. So it's not that we think climate security should have formal billing on the COP27 agenda, but we think it's essential that it's threaded throughout relevant parts of the agenda. And that's because if you look at the countries that are most vulnerable to climate change, more than half of those are already experiencing conflict. So it's essential that conflict is part of the conversation. Or we are going to design funding mechanisms and financial streams that really don't take into account the needs of those people. It's so important to really understand the local context and to really know what the conflict dynamics are, to make sure that the measures people put forward are really going to work and really going to have an impact. Jampa, we've been talking about this, and we've been talking about it in a very general sense. And one of the things I'm wondering, when I look at conflict, I see how very differently wars affect different people and how gendered a lot of these effects are. And I'm curious if you've noticed this too at the intersection of climate and conflict, that women or men face very different demands or very different challenges as a result of it. And I'm wondering, first, if that's true, but second, if it is true, to what extent policy responses address this adequately? The sad truth is they don't. And we are very aware of this in our work within the climate team at Crisis Group. So we've made a commitment to ensure that all of our climate security work will be gender sensitive. And we're working with our colleagues to think through how do we do our analysis, our advocacy, our policy work in a way that truly understands the differentiated impact of climate change on different groups. It does disproportionately impact women and young people. It really depends on the conflict in terms of how that impacts them differently. But this is something that we're very, very conscious of. The one-size-fits-all policy solutions really don't capture the differentiated impacts that different parts of communities face. And it's important, again, for impact to make sure that any sort of policy proposals put forward or any sort of initiatives or activities really think through and understand how does conflict or climate change impact differing groups in society and what is needed to meet the needs of those differing groups because they're not going to all experience these issues in the same way. Champa, thank you so much. This has been really rich and informative and I hope that we'll be able to bring you back to talk about these issues, perhaps in the context of specific conflicts and situations around the world. Thanks for having me, Ollie. I really enjoyed the discussion and look forward to continuing it. To read more of Crisis Group's work on climate and conflict, you should go to our website, www.crisisgroup.org, and you'll find extensive analysis of the impact of climate change and its impact on conflicts around the world. Indeed, as we write about conflicts, that is something we try to always be threading through our analysis and our research. You can follow Crisis Group on Twitter. It's at Crisis Group. You can find Champa on Twitter. She's at Patel underscore Champa. I'm at Olya Olaker. And Alyssa Jobson, who couldn't be here for this conversation, but will be back soon, is at Alyssa Jobson. You should also check out Crisis Group on Facebook and Instagram, where it is at Crisis Group. If you've enjoyed this podcast and or have suggestions for topics or guests for the show, do let us know. Uh, Twitter is a good way to let us know, but other online formats also work. You can also email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. And of course, if you are on iTunes or whatever else, uh, we welcome your ratings and reviews. 
War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts about Europe, Europod. You should check out the others. Big thanks to producer Bull Media and to our coordinators, Finn Dunbar-Johnson and Alex Vygorsky, who get this podcast ready to go every time we record and make sure that it records smoothly and makes sense. But the biggest thanks, as always, are to you, our listeners. I'm looking forward to chatting with you again in two weeks. But until then, goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.